If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, take uh, them and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I I do this because the, the really spiritual mature crowd's always in the first service. You all are aware of that, right? If you're aware of that, let's see those hands. All right. Of course, you know I'll say the same in the second service. And pit two congregations together if I can. Um, I, uh, we, we've, we've changed the internal process for getting things into the bulletin to make it easier on the ladies. We've changed the format in the bulletin to, to uh, trim some costs, to make it more cost efficient and so on. So we have to have our information in by, by uh, 5 p.m. on Monday. Now, Gwen, I don't know if Gwen's in the first service, if you're in here, Gwen, but uh, I don't want any of the other staff to know this, but Gwen would have let me fudge a little than over that 5 p.m. deadline. Um, but I honored the system. And so I turned in this text and this title, and that's all I had was a text and a title. Tuesday, I thought, surely there's a sermon in here. <laughs> By Wednesday, I was scratching my head and I was thinking and tapping my fingers on my desk and thinking, there's got to be a sermon in here. Well, by Friday morning, I was starting to perspire heavily and uh, still thinking there has to be a sermon in here. Well, I think there may be, with the Lord's blessing, not mine, something for all of us in here. You know, the Ten Commandments are making a comeback of sorts in the public square. The Texas state legislature just passed rather decidedly to post them in public places in the state of Texas. That's working its way through the Oklahoma state legislature. A little bit of a battle there, but, but apparently uh, Oklahoma, following the, the, the pattern of Texas, wants to do the same in public places in Oklahoma. That, that's far different than the legal melee that erupted in Alabama about five or six years ago when Judge Roy Moore refused to take down the monument to the Ten Commandments in the courthouse There in Alabama. Eventually, Judge Moore was deposed from his judgeship because of his steadfast refusal to obey the law of the land and remove the Ten Commandments. But one thing I've noticed that whether it's in a place of employment or whether it's in someone's front yard or whether it's making the news, what is often left out of the Ten Commandments is the preface, the opening statement. But the opening statement not only sets the context, it tells you something about the one who's giving the Ten Commandments. And it tells you something about the the people to whom these Ten Commandments are given. The the preface sets the frame. It sets the, the overall context. And then it's filled in with the Ten Commandments. The The preface begins by reminding us that we are God's people because He has intervened in our lives, because He's liberated us from our bondage. That's exactly how the text begins with Him reminding Israel that He had intervened in their lives with His grace and His power to set them free from the tyranny of Egypt. It comes with a dramatic display of God's power. Sometimes when you read through the book of Exodus, those early chapters with all the plagues and so on, you're, you're tempted to believe that it took God not plan A and plan B, but all the way down to plan J to get them out of Egypt. And such is not the case. He is displaying his power in the midst of darkness and paganism and idolatry. He's judging all the false idols and the false gods of Egypt. That's what he's doing. He's not... 
trying, uh, the Trinity in heaven is not saying, well, plan A didn't work. What are we going to do now? And someone says, well, hey, let's try frogs. They don't like frogs. Let's, let's send them frogs. God is unfolding his power and his majesty, and he's judging Egypt for how they've treated his covenant people. And so the preface to the Ten Commandments begins with a self-declaration of God's godness, of his sufficiency, of his majesty, of his faithfulness to promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And these words are spoken in a context that's alarming. It's like a, it's like an IMAX revelation of the awesomeness of God as, as the mountain shakes under his presence, as the peak of the mountain erupts in a pure holy flame and fire with a crackle and pop of lightning like some cosmic whip. The people are so stunned by what they see and they're so stunned by what they hear that they beg Moses, tell God to stop speaking to us. Let him speak to you, and then you speak to us. And so the the pattern here is that God delivered his people and then instructs his people. The gospel of deliverance came first, and then the words to frame the life of those whom he had delivered proceed. God intervened and set them free, not as some rogue despot who says to them now in the Ten Commandments, I'm in control, sit down and shut up and listen to me. God reveals himself as a liberator, as a redeemer, as one who's entirely sufficient for his people in all places and at all times. The law is, as someone said, a melody whose notes consist of joyful, thankful living before him. And so we begin where the text ought to begin. And we begin in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in the heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them to bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock. Or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth to see and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. 
Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off. While Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The Princeton Religion Research Group recently released a report with this headline, Religion is gaining ground, but morality is losing ground. Religion is gaining ground, but morality is losing ground. They cite recent increases in church attendance and Recent increases in Bible reading, while simultaneously there is a deterioration of morality in the public square and as well as as best they can tell in the private square, a rather stunning decline in morality and ethical behavior. And so these words from a God who not only redeems but also reveals himself as Lord will not let us off the hook so easily. He mercifully rescues us as Savior. And then he speaks to us not only as Savior, but as Lord, as a gracious king who has a rightful rule, a rightful claim over our lives. And as it turns out, in coming to God, we realize that his grace is quite intolerant. It's an intolerant grace because it challenges every other claim upon our lives. It steadily moves us to renounce every wrongful inclination and act while steadily teaching us and enabling us to honor him and obey him and to serve him with joy and gladness, even as the Lord prompts a holiness that honors him and genuinely helps other people. Now, if you're kind of keeping count here, the first four of the Ten Commandments are vertically related. They orient us to God. They tell us what kind of God he is and how he is to be worshipped. The next series of commandments, what sometimes is called the second tablet of the law, orient us to one another. They they tell us how we're to relate to other people. But it's in the tenth commandment that we get really to the heart. Commandments five through nine deal with deeds, things that you can see. And now as Christians in the 21st century, the other side of the cross and the other side of Jesus... We read the Ten Commandments not in isolation, but we read them through the final interpreter, and that's the Lord himself, who says it's not only acts of adultery, but it's looks of adultery. Who says it's not only the act of murder, but it's the anger in the heart as well as the unkind and harsh word that's spoken. So he intensifies the law. But it's in the Tenth Commandment, the one that we're really going to pay attention to for a few moments this morning that really gets down to the heart and exposes the heart. And it exposes in us the difficulty of trusting God while we're so busily engaged in playing God. The difficulty of trusting God while we're so busily engaged in playing God. Now, how is that possible? I'd like to suggest this morning that it's possible whenever we substitute our desires When we substitute what we want for what God has chosen to provide. When we substitute our desires for what God has chosen to provide. 
the, the word covet is derived from a Hebrew word. We use the word covet in this translation, but it's actually a very strong desire. It's not necessarily sinful in and of itself. It's the, it's the context, the circumstance that determines whether the, the, the desire is sinful or not. But it, it's, it's a longing, it's a yearning, it's a strong desire for someone or something. David desired Bathsheba and went to extraordinary ends to have her. Ahab, the wicked king, desired the vineyard of the man that was next door to the palace and his wife Jezebel, who really was a Jezebel, went to enormous ends to secure that vineyard illegally through the misuse of the law. Saul desired the popularity, the gifts, the the status, the leadership abilities of David and went to the extraordinary ends to eliminate him as a rival claimant to the throne. To desire leadership abilities, not the point. To, de- to, uh, to desire popularity is not the point. To desire beauty and that which is attractive is not the point. It becomes the point when it's something that God has chosen to not give us, in which we find ourselves bumping up against what God has given us. We desire that which He has not chosen to give us, and therefore in those very desires we sit on the throne, and in a very indirect way, or maybe sometimes directly. We tell God he's not doing a very good job of giving us what we want and what we imagine that we need. Our desires for what God has chosen not to give can betray an underlying lack of confidence in God's ability to manage our lives. When I want that wife, when I want his job, when I want his gifts, when I want his popularity, when I want his leadership ability then I'm questioning, underneath it all, I'm questioning the judgment of God. I'm challenging in a fundamental way in my heart His ability to give me what He wants me to have. And you cannot trust God while you're busy playing God. When our so-called needs are not met in the way that we want them and when we want them, when the answers to prayers are long delayed, when the suffering endures, how do we know when we're playing God? How do we know when we've stopped trusting Him and when we've started playing His role in our lives? When we grow frustrated with the delays. That's where it really shows up in my life. When the, the answer to, to what I think are legitimate, fervent prayers are long delayed, months or even years. I begin to want to usurp the role of God, and I begin to want to help him accomplish the answers. Have you ever done that? You wanted to help the Lord just a little bit? You wanted to help him speed things up? You wanted to help him fix another person? Do not look at your husband or your wife right now. It will give it away. Have you ever wanted to kind of step in and be the convicting work of the Holy Spirit? You wanted to be the voice of the Lord in someone's life and you were growing impatient with what the Lord was doing and so you wanted to step in and help the Lord? We've quit trusting Him for that person and we've begun to play His role and to do His part and it's hard to trust Him while you're busily engaged in playing the part that is His alone. It surfaces in Israel as a nation. 
We see it in Israel before and after the Lord had set them free from, from uh, Egyptian bondage and slavery, which is a metaphor for the coming work of Christ. They complain when God did not act quickly enough in Exodus chapter 5 and 6. God sends Moses back and Moses says, I'm going to deliver you. God has sent me back to deliver you. And, uh, and he goes in and announces it to Pharaoh and things get worse after the promise comes. And isn't that the way of it? We have the promise and sometimes it often worsens while we're waiting on the Lord. And so they complain because God was not acting and moving quickly enough to suit them. After they came out of Egypt, they complained because of a, a lack of water and a lack of food. They were treating God as though he were some kind of cosmic genie at their beck and call. And he obeyed their commands and did their bidding when and how and where they wanted him to do it. And we can't trust the Lord when we're trying to manage his part in our lives and the lives of other people. It's funny, in Exodus 32, when Moses goes to the mountain, they said, look, we're afraid of God, and and um, and we don't want him to speak directly to us, but we'd like for him to speak directly to you. I, I thought about that in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah encounters this grand vision of God and he sees him high and holy and seated upon a throne and and his train fills the temple and there's the antiphonal cry of the seraphim and he hears this inter-trinitarian conversation who will go for us I think if it had been me I would have raised my hand and said here am I send Johnny and so they're saying we don't want this God to speak to us we want him to speak to you And so when this God says to Moses, come up to the mountain, they grow so weary and impatient with the delay to hear what this God is going to do that in Exodus 32, they form an idol, they fashion an idol because now they have a God they can manage and control. And they begin to think about Egypt and they begin to remember Egypt so much better than it was. And isn't that the truth of all of us? That as we think back on past occasions or scenes, our memory is somewhat jaded and dimmed by reality. And so they were going to help the Lord, help them. And they ended up falling before the work of their own hands, distorting the reality and the memory of all that God had promised. I think the truth is every two-year-old and every honest 40-year-old knows that most of our battles in life are really within our own hearts. We want what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. And we become angry, frustrated, complaining, and distrustful when our, when our prayers are not answered and God doesn't do exactly what, he wanted, what we want Him to do. And that kind of inward dissatisfaction leads to impatient, ungrateful discontentment with God as Savior and King and Lord. It lays behind the fall in Genesis chapter 3 when... God created the man and the woman and he placed them in paradise in a cornucopia of plenty, surrounded by unsolid creation, in which all of creation clearly reflected in an undimmed way the beauty and the glory of the creator. And God says you can eat of all of it. And if you'll permit this loose paraphrase, you can eat of all of it until you pop if you want to. But you just can't eat of this one tree. And the ancient hiss of the serpent can still be heard whispering in our souls. 
We're surrounded by plenty. We're surrounded by abundance. We're surrounded by obvious evidence of God's kindness and God's grace and of God's saving, redeeming work, that he is a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. And we become riveted, fixed in our attention and our worry and our anger and our frustration on that one thing that God has seemingly withheld from us in this season of life. And it's hard to trust him when we're busy playing his role in our lives. There's a very small space, admittedly, between honest desire and overreaching, grasping, craving that enthrones our desires for what God in his wise mercy has provided. And when God brings us to life, faith, and repentance in Christ, we're not struck blind. We don't suddenly become deaf and dumb to the beauties of God's creation and the world around us. So how do we know when we've crossed the line? How do we know when we've, when we've closed the gap between that small interior space? How do we know? We know when we begin to distrust God's providence. We know when we complain about God's present provision. We know when we resent the gifts and the success and the accolades and the comforts that he's given other people. And we've stopped trusting God. In those places in our lives. Because we're playing God. We know we're playing God when we can't rest in and trust in his rule in our lives. When we can't really praise him from the heart. When we can't celebrate his kindness to other people. And so it becomes really hard to trust him. Because we've blurred the lines between his being God. His being Lord. His being Savior. His being Redeemer and our wanting to be. Secondly, I think the text would suggest that we stop trusting God and play God when we pursue what God has clearly forbidden us. How can you pray and wait and think and bless what God has forbidden you in His clearly revealed will? How can you invoke the blessing of Christ How can you celebrate and applaud in your life your pursuit or my pursuit of that which God clearly in his word has marked off and says this does not belong to you? In every marriage ceremony, there's a there's an exchange of rings and the exchange of those rings says that I've engaged in a covenant relationship between between this woman and God is the witness. He's the he's the third party here. So how could I ever invoke the blessing of God and thank him and praise him for that flirtation? How could I ever thank him and praise him for that dabbling in pornography or other sins that actually uh, devalue that covenantal relationship? It's not possible. And yet when we try to legitimize what the Lord has delegitimized, we've crossed the line from trusting to playing his role. When we're single and we ignore the clear prerequisites of vital faith in Christ as a wise guideline for dating, 2 Corinthians 6 about not being unequally yoked, Proverbs 12 about the righteous should choose his friends carefully because the way of the wicked lead him astray, 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived, bad manners corrupt good morals. There's a host of those. Those are the only ones I could think of off the top of my head. When we ignore that and we pray over, we're single and we pray over that person because they're so attractive, they're so successful, they're so funny, they're so bright, they get me. 
And when yet we know morally, legitimately, this is not what God has prescribed for us and we thrust ourselves headlong against what he's revealed to us, we play him. We play the role of God. Instead of worshiping and serving him, we bow and serve our own desires. I'm 52 years old now and I've been a pastor for more than two decades. And I cannot tell you the countless people and in my own life, the times in which I had bowed before the wisdom of God in which I had listened to his word. I had listened to his voice speaking clearly in the scripture. Let me give you one quick example. We'll have to hasten on from here. But many years ago when Melinda, my wife and I were living in Martin, Tennessee as a small church pastor. And I started a campus ministry at UT Martin. I know several people here have come from UT Martin. We started a campus ministry while we were there. It was called Chi Alpha. And one Thursday night in a Bible study at the student center, one young lady came in and during the entire time of worship and singing and, and uh, Bible study and prayer, she's wiping tears off her cheeks. And after it's over with, she comes to me and she says, I wish that when you talk about obeying the will of God, what's revealed in Scripture, not those things that are indifferent, but the things that are clearly revealed, that somehow we could get it. Because I did not listen to the counsel of my mom and dad. I married against their blessing, not with it. I did not heed the voice of my pastor. I went against it. And she began to sob. And she said, and I have paid for it ever since. When our desires overtake his clear direction, we've stopped trusting him. We've stopped believing that there's the, the prince is still out there. The princess is still out there. When we're married and, and we physically and mentally take off the sign of our covenant with, with the covenant with our spouse before God and the person he's given us, we play him by worshiping our desires instead of what he's called us to. When we're married with children and we work and expend enormous amounts of energy to change our families to suit our needs and preferences, when we manage and manipulate our children so that they turn out like we want them to turn out, and we lose sight of who the real transformer of hearts is, we stop trusting him for our children. We stop trusting him for our husband and our wife. And we begin to play his role, and it leads to frustration and anger and bitterness. And rightly so, because we've intruded into divine territory. Places and spaces and authorities and roles and prerogatives that are His alone. When we compartmentalize our lives into sections and we live one way on Sunday and another Monday through Saturday, we stop trusting God by reserving portions of our life for ourselves rather than serving Him in all of life. We can't trust Him in those areas. You can't trust Him with your job. You cannot trust him with your marriage, your children. You cannot trust him with a financial downturn, when the market is bad and getting worse, when you try to play his role instead of looking him for looking to him for direction and wisdom and strength and comfort. The Ten Commandments expose the heart, expose the, the motions and the movements of the heart. And the Tenth Commandment in particular moves from the specific to the general, from the house to the wife to the servants to the livestock. Now, frankly, I've never seen a donkey that, I, that I've that i coveted. 
I've never seen an ox that I just frothed at the mouth to possess. But here's the application. The servants and the livestock represented success. They represented status. They represented accomplishment. They represented comfort. They represented ease. And so when we begin to long for and desire that which God has not given to us, we stop trusting Him. And we begin to play his role. And it, it, this, look, the Tenth Commandment lays before us this inward mechanism. We nurture the desire. We plan to fulfill it. We surrender to it. And we pursue that end. It's the interior space that God's laying before us in this command. Then what we desire may not be sinful in and of itself. It may not be. But it can take on godlike status when we begin to look to it for our comfort. When we begin to look to it for our affirmation, for our sense of well-being, for a sense of power, for a sense of belonging, for answers, for identity. That's why Colossians 3, 5 in talking about covetousness calls it idolatry. It links the desire for these things with idolatry. And coveting someone else's spouse, desiring another spouse, we automatically think of a, a sexual connotation there, but it may not be. It could, it could be coveting the intimacy, the beauty, the gifts, the abilities, the, the, the leadership, the accomplishment. It could be all the attractions and symbols of, of success with the security that goes with it. You know, every boy wants to hear a father say, son, I love you. I'm proud of you. And you've got the right stuff to become a fine man. Every little boy wants to hear that. And every little girl wants to hear from her mom and her dad, you're attractive, you're, you're charming, you're terrific, and I admire you and I applaud you. Every little girl, every little boy wants to hear that. But it becomes wrong when we look for it in all the wrong places. When God has already said it to us in this gospel, when He's already said that you're valuable and worth all of that to me because I have chosen you. I have redeemed you by the blood of my son. I have brought you into my family. I will sustain you. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will so work in your life that you begin to reflect the pattern of the pattern son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that is not about us. It's about him. It's about reflecting and magnifying the glory of God. God may not have chosen to give us those things for his own purposes. Because he has a greater end in mind. And that is to make us like his son and our savior, the Lord Jesus. But he has given so much more. And he's given it to us in the gospel of his grace. Augustine said we cannot de- deny the desires that we have. But we can direct them in another direction. And how do we do that? How do we do that? How do I begin to redirect those desires within me because frankly to desire is human and sometimes they are just plopped down in your lap and you can't do anything about it at the moment so how do we redirect them first of all we praise God for what he has given I heard the story once of Russell Conway who had uh, some acreage that he sold and he wanted to take the money and go off to a faraway place and uh, become a diamond miner And so he took what he had sold and 
he packed up, he took the property sold, he packed up, and he began to travel the world looking for diamonds. The person to whom he had sold the property to one day inadvertently discovered that in that acreage there was acres of diamonds. And that's the title of the book, Acres of Diamonds. Russell Conway was standing in the middle of acres of diamonds and did not know it. He was blind to it because he desired that which was afar off. How do we redirect the desires? We begin to praise God for what He has given us. We begin to thank Him and to worship Him for the gifts that He has seen fit to give us. We bless Him for the gifts that He's given to other people. We affirm His wisdom in giving those gifts to other people. We ask Him for the grace to rest content with His gifts to us and to seek to improve them as He enables us to do so. And we repent specifically and intelligently and repeatedly whenever we stop trusting Him and start doing His job allegedly for Him. You see, the starting point with this 10th commandment really is love for God. Love for God. First Timothy 1 says that's the end of the law is love for, love for God and a good conscience. Well, the starting point for this 10th command is love for God, love, loving Him enough to be content. And loving others enough to be thankful for God's goodness in their life. The best house is the one you live in now because that's the one the Lord has provided. The best spouse is the one you said I do to because that's the one the Lord has given you. And the job and the school, those are the places in which the gifts He has given you can flourish under His transforming rule in your life. I um, am somewhat embarrassed to tell you that I'm an office watcher. That's right. I feel so much better confessing that on a Sunday morning in a worship service. And uh, I was waiting for the office to come on the other night. And and I started watching this documentary on CNBC called House of Cards. Maybe you've seen it. It's going to come out or has come out in a DVD. But it's it's an intimate unraveling of all that took place behind the scenes, the inner workings of the the financial peak and then the collapse that's taken that's now plunged us headlong into this financial crisis. It's a fascinating study. I, I, I may even get the DVD because I'd like to go back and watch it again. But after unraveling all of this at the end, the the interviewer is asking Alan Greenspan how we got to this point and what we could do to prevent it from happening again. And Greenspan says, well, we got here because of greed. That's a 21st century name for covet or desire. It's their synonyms. He said, we got here because of greed. And as to how we could prevent this from happening again, he smiled and he said, there's no law that can stop it because there's no law that can change human nature. Bingo. He's exactly right. There is no law that can change our hearts and change our nature and this 10th commandment is not designed to change the heart. It's designed to expose the heart. Because in exposing our hearts, it leads us to Jesus. It leads us to Christ, who has perfectly fulfilled all of these 10. And that becomes our righteousness and our standing before the Father. But the Son, the Lord Jesus, now gives us His Spirit. And he begins to work these commandments out in our lives so that we gladly serve the Lord in the ways that he so clearly prescribes in the grace and power with which he gives us. Membership in the Society of 
fallen sons and daughters of Adam will guarantee that you and I will struggle. Our hearts will struggle with desires. And membership in an American consumer society will guarantee that there will be many things that shape and stimulate those desires. But membership in the kingdom of God under the transforming rule of a good and powerful king reminds us that there's only one God who's worthy of worship and service and obedience. And it's the God who has redeemed us for himself. And it's not us. He's the only one we can trust because he's the only true and living God. Our Father, I pray this morning that you would indeed search our hearts through these words of Scripture that they would penetrate our heart and our understanding, that you would expose very clearly those areas where we've attempted foolishly, repeatedly, to usurp your role and your authority. Grant us very specific repentance. Grant us forgiveness and cleansing through the finished work of Christ, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.